again. That one that died is coming again. Not to die, but to reign. Prepare ye to meet the Lord. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, if you would please. <clears throat> And no, I'm not teaching Chinese this morning. But you do have that for a reason. You'll see in a while. But anyway, Romans chapter 1. I want to start reading at verse 8. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you there that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. The title of the message this morning simply, Debtors to the World. Debtors to the World. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. Thank you, Father, for music and we sing praise to thy glorious name. And for the truth that we've sung even this morning that has encouraged and strengthened our hearts, we rejoice in that. Father, we pray now as we look into the word of God that you'd encourage us and challenge us and strengthen us in our walk with you. Help us to realize our purpose as we live in this sojourn in this world here until you come for us. I pray that you give us strength, wisdom, and courage to be obedient. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. You people in, in America, particularly in the past generations, regardless of race, gender, or faith, religion, believed in an earn-your-way, serve-to-gain-a-living mentality. Obstacles, hardships, unfair standards, even racial inequalities were not reason to adopt a victim mentality. They were simply seen as obstacles to be overcome. Burgess Owens has written a book, and I can't remember the whole title, but it's something about weenies, whiners, and wimps. And it's about how men, particularly black men, he's a black man, played professional football, or, uh, yeah, professional football, was made the all-star team and all that. But anyway, 
he, he, it's about how black men have been made weenies, whiners, and wimps. And he talks about his father's generation that grew up and served in World War II in the Korean War and, how, and the racial inequalities that there were, yet they never saw themselves as victims, but simply saw those things as obstacles that they could overcome. He said when his father and his uncle, who all of them had college degrees, a couple of them from Ohio State University, after they had passed, they went through some of their belongings, and they found letter after letter of rejection from colleges simply because they were black. And they never mentioned it. They never talked about it. They never said how unfair it was. Or, how, or they never mentioned that it was, it was racism and all this stuff that we hear about today. You know, and this attitude is not just amongst blacks. It has completely, completely, not just, but, but it, has, it has permeated our society in every race in our society. A victim mentality. You know, these, these, in the past, these scenes are simply seen as obstacles. Now, of course, all that's changed, and it is affecting our churches. Young people are taught that schooling is unfair. Instead of admitting failure, working, solving your problem, it's the school. When they get to the workplace, the boss is unfair, and again, they are a victim. Instead of being thankful for an opportunity to serve and make a living, they become angry, unable to keep a job, and after all, they are not wrong. They have not failed. They are victims. They think everyone owes them. They have rights and privileges, and they are entitled to those rights and privileges that former generations simply saw as opportunities to be earned. You know, this debtor, as it's called here, or made-to-serve philosophy was a byproduct of our Christian heritage. And Burgess Owens talks about that and references that as the reason why they did what they did. It was their Christian heritage. You know, even the Jewish people had a thought process of, if you made good money, in other words, if you, if you accumulated some wealth, it was because you served well. You served well. In other words, they, what that means is you earned it or that you should earn it. And Paul brings out in this chapter here, in this passage, that we are debtors to mankind. If you notice in verse 14, Paul uses three I am's in these three verses, 14 through 16. The first one is, I am debtor. And he says, I'm debtor both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. And the word debtor means one held by some obligation, bound to some duty. So it's to be under obligation to do something for someone. And again, the idea of servant. You know, Paul mentioned over and over again, I the servant of the Lord, or I the prisoner of the Lord. So he was under an obligation given to him by God. You know, when he says the Greeks, that's basically somebody that's not Jew. To the barbarians, those ignorant, still, you know, somebody that's not Jew, but ignorant of the Greek language and culture. You know, they were kind of the uncivilized people of the world. The wise refers to those skilled with letters who had education. 
those unwise, unskilled, or uneducated. So really what he's saying is, I'm a debtor to all men. All men. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he said, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, in verses 43 to 45, But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister. Or the word minister means servant. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. In Titus chapter 2, in verses 9 through 10, if you would just turn over there for a minute, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, the Lord gives us some instruction about the workplace. Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Titus 2, verse 9 says, Exhort servants. Now, in our modern tech, uh, 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 vernacular, we would say exhort employees. That's the idea here. Exhort employees to be obedient unto their own employers, master, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not prolorning, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The word prolorning means to take for oneself, to withdraw covertly or secretly or deceitfully or undercover. So you're taking from the employer what doesn't belong to you. It could be stealing of time. <coughs> I remember my sister-in-law saying she worked at Mead Paper Company in Alexander, Pennsylvania. They had a bell that would announce the break time. And they had a bell when break time was over. And she, was, she said, I'm the only person that would stay at my station until the bell rang. And I'm the only person that would be at my station when the bell rang again. You know what, that's stealing company time. This is common practice in America today. Not for warning. He says, showing all good fidelity or faithfulness or one that can be relied on. You know, we as God's children should be known as reliable, trusted to do our job, to serve honestly, to do a job right as expected. You know, it should be said of us, I can count on him. I trust him. You know, one of the things that impressed me when Eric Chapman was here, remember the, the man, Tadis? I guess that's how you say his name. He's a Lithuanian. He goes to the church. He said, I would trust him with my own children. He's faithful. He can be counted on. He can be relied on. I mean, that's the kind of people that we need to be, or we should be. You know, even those people in the world, they're going to they're watch us in the workplace. And we should be trusted. You know, we are, we are again, ought to be servants. You know, this should be our philosophy in the church. We are debtors. We are debtors, Paul says. We are debtors 
to each other and to the world. I want to notice several things here Paul talks about or makes reference to in the fact that we are debtors to in this passage. First of all, we are debtors to pray for one another. Notice verses 8 through 10. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. You know, this is something that every one of us can and should participate in. No matter how young or how old. Even if you're an invalid, you can participate in this. Serving one another in prayer. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. <coughs> yeah, we don't look at prayer. I'm afraid in our, our day and time, we don't look at prayer as a... As a Work ministry. And that's a wrong view. And I'm guilty of it as I'm sure as anybody else is. But, but prayer is a powerful ministry. Second Corinthians 1 verse 8 says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, even insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raised us from the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Notice this next phrase, ye also helping together by prayer for us. That for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Paul said, we were pressed out of measure. You know, it, the, what he's saying here is, we thought we were going to die. And one of his trips, of course, there were several trips. And of course, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter 12, he lists all the things and the trials and hardships that he went through and suffered for the gospel's sake. And many times he was at the point where they thought they were going to die. But he said, you helped us together by your prayer. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. James 5, 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The fervent, effectual, effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Samuel told Israel, even though they asked for a king, Samuel told them in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. You see, we need to pray one for another. Pray one for another. We are debtors to pray one for another. We need to pray one for another. Pray for the lost, particularly those we rub shoulders with and work with, for the Lord to direct our words and our witness. Paul said in Romans 10.1, my, my uh, brother and my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. 
<coughs> excuse me. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 1 through 4, he says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. You see, God says prayer is good and it's acceptable. It's pleasing to God. It brings the favor of God. It brings the favor of God. You see, we are debtors to pray one for another. Secondly, we are debtors to establish one another. Notice verses 11 through 13. (coughs) Excuse me. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. So Paul's prayer was, and he was indebted to, to establish them and encourage them in the faith. And we are debtors to establish one another. Now, the word establish means to strengthen, to make firm, to confirm one's mind. And, and the, the other words here are similar. The comforter together means strengthen together. You know, we are, when we come together, we are strengthened together. And it's mutual. He uses the word mutual here also. In uh, verse uh, 12, um, that is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Mutual faith refers to uh, reciprocate, or in other words, given or felt toward each other. Complementary. It means to give benefit to each other. And it's often been said that a husband and wife are to complement each other. Complement each other. In other words, to help each other. Your Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Hebrews 24, or 10, 24 and 25, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as man of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, we are to encourage and strengthen one another. <coughs> and we all. Now, you may say, well, what am I doing to do that? Your presence. Your presence is an encouragement. Not just to me, but to other people. You know, it's, it's a blessing, uh, and I'm reaping blessings of that, but I'm going to share it with you, to sit and listen to Junior and Dottie talk about how people here treat them. You're an encouragement. You are an encouragement to them. 
And that is going that is going a long way to establish them in the faith. You know, and this was very important to Paul and to all the apostles in the New Testament. They all spoke about this. In, in Romans 16, 25, he says again, Now to him that is of the power to establish you according to my gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 and 13, he again talks about them being established. And he sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Verse 13, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all saints. You know, the, the church of Thessalonica was, was shaken a little bit. They were unsure what happens after we die. You know, we've heard about the second coming of Christ, but what happens to us after we die? And so Paul sent Timothy there to establish them, to confirm them, to strengthen them. Even Peter in 2 Peter 1.12 says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put away you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. You know, the world in the days of Paul and Peter was a world filled with hatred and animosity to Christians. They were vilified and blamed for catastrophes, even blamed for the burning of Rome, who has believed Nero set it on fire himself so he could rebuild it. And I'm here to tell you, friend, our world has never been a friend to God's people. And it is vital that we be established in the faith. Not just what we believe, but why we believe it. But why? You know, it's not wrong to ask, why? Why do we believe that? It's not wrong to investigate the Bible for truth. In fact, Paul said about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, these were more noble than them at Thessalonica in that they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You Could you imagine? You know, I've known preachers today, I've heard about them told one time that this one preacher went to your jack house and he said these guys are getting notepads out and he said put your notepads away you know what I had done I think I think I left if you can't allow me to examine what you say you're not worth listening to and it shows me that you're a totalitarian philosophy You have every right to examine everything I say. And I'd be glad if you do. Because it does two things. It'll confirm it in your mind. And it'll keep me true to the word of God. You see, I'm not above error. Or the capability of error. And we all need checks and balances. That's, you know. That's our government was set up for. You know, they got that idea from the Baptist church. But why? You know, they checked up on Paul. Why do we ladies not wear that which pertains to a man? We ladies, yeah. Yeah. 
Why shouldn't ladies? It blurs the differences between the genders. God made them male and female. I'm not going to go into this detail, but, you know, the whys. It, it's, it's distinction. You know, it has nothing to do with equality. We're all one in Christ. But God made us different for different roles. And he wants us to maintain that distinction. And we can see, if you look in our society, that the blurring of that distinction is destroying our society. And the, found, the foundation of society, which is the home. We even see that in the animal kingdom, by the way. The distinction between the genders. It's a protection against immorality, modesty, and shamefacedness, as the Bible talks about in Timothy. Why do, we, why do we teach that we ought to abstain from alcohol? Well, the Bible teaches it. But also, if you look at the debauchery of drunkenness in the world, it demonstrates that what the Bible says about it is true. Read Proverbs 23. Woe to him. Why do we believe in a six-day creation? Day creation? You know, we'll talk about that next week because we're going to get into things that are made. But if you take any issue in life and examine it in the light of the light of what is any issue about life in the scriptures and examine it in light of what is happening in the world, you have to admit the Bible is true. The flood. You know, a lot of people in the world don't believe there was a worldwide flood. But you can go to almost every culture in the world today, and they'll give you, and it will show or demonstrate in some way that there was a worldwide flood. And what you have is just an example of that. In the Chinese language, the word for boat, the word for boat is, you know, of course, they, they've got characters, is a vessel of eight people. Where do you get that idea from? Noah's Ark. Or the word flood. Is water total? What's total mean? It means the whole. In other words, we're talking about the whole world. Together, plus earth, and again, eight. Again, where did they get that from? And if you want to evidence this, you can go to um, just Google it and, and ask about cultures, that, what they say about the flood. And it gives you a whole list, not just of China. And the things that are, are written or scribbled and, and engraved on caves and different parts, different places in, their, in their, these different countries, and, and all the evidence or the agreement that, it, that they say that lines up with the scriptures. Almost all of them talk about the whole, in other words, a worldwide flood. See, what I'm saying is we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we can search the scriptures and look at things in light of that in the world, and you'll have to admit the Bible's true. And we'll look more at this next week. But, but we are debtors to establish one another. Thirdly, we are debtors to preach the gospel to all. Notice verses 14, 
through 17 again, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. See, we are debtors to preach the gospel to all. Paul said, I am debtor both to the Greeks, the barbarians, to the wise, and to the unwise. And we come to the conclusion when he talked about that, when he made those those descriptions, and he was talking about everybody, to everyone. This is the greatest need that everyone in the world has today. The gospel. It is the power of God. That word power means, again, means power. The ability to, you know, the, the gospel has the power or the ability to change and transform a life. You know, Colossians 1.13 says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his, his dear son. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 and verse 9, we see an example of this power or this change. He says, For our gospel came unto you, not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So they gave, you know, in giving the gospel, the power of God was demonstrated because they were persecuted in the, in the giving of it. There was persecution broke out, and they had to flee to Berea from Thessalonica. So there was turmoil and, and a hardship in giving the gospel, and yet it went forth in spite of that. Then in verse 9 he says this, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. See, there was a change. There was a transformation of lives. You know, these Thessalonians left their idolatrous temples. They're temples of immorality. They forsook them. And they turned to God. And formed a church. And assembled there to worship the living God. It, it, not only not only do we see them change from that, but it, it changed their families. Think of the impact it had on their families. Some of you can give testimony of the impact. We can all give testimony of the impact that, that the gospel has had on our families. Chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians. Again, he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when we received the word of God which you heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It effectually worketh. Power to change. You see, the Christian life, or a life of faith, uh, or receiving the gospel is more than a talk. It is a life characterized by righteousness. Notice, notice, if you will, verses 16 and 17 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
The word righteousness means, you know, the righteousness God described, what God declares to be righteousness. It's a condition acceptable by God. You see, these people went from being unacceptable to God to accepted by God. And their lives were unacceptable by God, but now they are acceptable to God. It's to everyone that believeth. Of course, believeth means you put their trust or confidence in or depend on. It's not just all I know. See, we've got a world full of people around here that know. They know. Somehow it doesn't get to here and out here. It's more than just talk. Faith has evidence. Think about it. Every person in Hebrews chapter 11 that's talked about, spoken of there, gave evidence of their faith. Righteousness was shown by the things that they did. Hebrews 11, one starts out, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word substance means confidence or firm trust or assurance. The word evidence means a proof. A proof. That by which a thing is proved or tested. Again, you know, we can talk about the stories about a World War flood, and we can prove it. They're everywhere. It gives evidence that there was a flood, according to that is in agreement with the flood of Noah's day recorded in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. And righteousness of God is revealed or demonstrated through the power of the gospel, the power to transform a life, to make it new. If there's no change in the life, is there any faith? And that's why James says, faith without works is dead. Faith that has no evidence is dead. Hebrews, or not, I'm sorry, second, or Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, Paul, of course, under inspiration of the Spirit, wrote those words. And Paul understood them very well. He went from persecuting Christians and blaspheming Christ to preaching the gospel of the risen Christ. He said all the old things are passed away. They're under the blood of Christ. And everything in my life has become new. You know, I think the only thing that Paul took, took with him into this new life was his zeal. But he had a zeal now, according to knowledge. In other words, it was governed by God and not by the Pharisees or himself. You see, we are debtors. 
We are debtors to the world. We are debtors to one another. You know, the gospel is the greatest need of mankind. It has the power of life and death. And there's no greater joy that one can have than to serve. You know, one of the things I've noticed, and if you, if you watch any of the news, that the people with the victim mentality are not happy. They're always angry. There's no peace there. In fact, Romans chapter 1, the end of the chapter, describes them. But there is a Chinese proverb that goes like this. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. In other words, serve. A debtor. Someone has said, quote, the sole meaning of life is to serve humanity, unquote. You know, Jesus said, he that is greatest among you, let him be servant of all. You know, we are debtors. We owe a debt to one another and to the world. Are we willing to lay aside our own ambitions? Are we focused on the purpose for which we are here? Is to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Paul said, I'm a debtor and I'm ready. For I'm not ashamed. Might God help us to not be ashamed. And to be, take the gospel be a debtor. Be one who serves and knows the joy that comes with serving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the challenge you give us from your word. Thank you for the truth of thy word. Father, I pray you help us to realize that we owe a debt to the world. obligation that you've laid upon us in which we can find the greatest joy there is in life with purpose and meaning to life. I pray you'd help us to realize the duty you've given to us and to fulfill that calling as a church and as individuals. Give us grace and strength. Forgive us where we fail. We do pray in Jesus' name.